We're, we're moving right along, James chapter 2, we're going to pick it up, we're going to go actually through a pretty uh, good section here. James chapter 2, verse 1, hear the word of God. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, and say, oh, you sit here in the good place while you say to the poor man, oh, you stand over there or you sit down at my feet. Have you not made, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme and the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in the one point has become guilty of it all. For he who has said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit a murder, if you do not commit adultery but do, com or, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as though who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. One more time, let's go over uh, to the Lord and pray over the reading of the word this morning. Father, we thank you for your word, your word that brings light. You bring the, the, the word that sharpens us and makes us more into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May it call to the sinner. May it grow the one who has been redeemed in this room. And may you be glorified above all things in this place. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, that's kind of an interesting uh, passage talking about where you sit. And um, it, this kind of reminds me, and, and if I could just summarize all of this, I would just put this under the category of either uh, preferential treatment, partiality, or something along one of those words. It reminds me of a current cultural observation that I have and. If some of you know me, know that I love giving cultural observations. Sometimes they get me in trouble, but here we are. We're at it again. If you have heard of some companies adopting a method called DEI, you know what that is? Diversity, equity, and inclusion. Most of these companies adopt this method, um, and many of them may have 
good intentions, but what you find is that upon further review of some of the terminologies that is used in this acronym, which should have been diversity, inclusion, equity, which the acronym would have been DIE, that seems to be a little bit more appropriate, but I'm digressing. What you find then is that they're not trying to level out the playing field. In fact, what it does is it creates an imbalance of things. And let me uh, just kind of uh, give you what I'm talking about upon their definitions of diversity. Uh, what they mean by diversity is that if you are a certain uh, ethnicity or if you are a certain religion, then you're not welcome here. Because why? You are have and have been the oppressor. Right? And, and notice I didn't say race, okay, because that's the language they want to use. But biblically, there's one race, and that is the race of Adam, okay? So, but if you are the one ethnicity group, uh, you, you just have, you have been the bad one, and so we don't want you here. And then you have the equity. Equity doesn't mean equal opportunity. It means equal outcomes. In other words, the victim groups are the ones who will be treated much greater than those who are the oppressors. And then you have the word inclusion. It doesn't mean everyone is included. In fact, it means the opposite. It means that those who have been seen as the oppressors, those are no longer welcome in this industry. Now, what may have been from a cultural observation seems like, well, this seems like this can be a good idea, but what it has done is taken those who have been seen as the oppressor and then ostracized them. And in essence, what has happened? More partiality is shown to one group than the other group. In fact, they have failed in their endeavors to create this sort of real inclusion in diversity. And, they have, and this is by, by, by just way of passing, and, and I don't know if you know this, this is why governmental things are terrible gods. Because what they try to do is fix situations, and in the end, all government does is just make a mess of things. And if you think I'm talking about liberals or, you know, Democrats, or I'm talking about all of them, because they have all kind of given in to this false idea which is eventually just shows that they, in essence, are the ones who are showing partiality. James here, my brother, is calling us out. Well, it would seem as if we just say, well, I don't see a problem with sitting in seats in here. Well, actually, we do have problems. You know, y'all be fighting over these, uh, these lounge chairs. You know, I'll be seeing y'all. You know, you got to get here real quick. You know what I'm saying? But really, though. Doesn't it seem like an odd text? What James has done really for us is identified a problem, and he has identified this from the previous chapter. Now, if we were in a church back in ancient Jerusalem, and someone gets up and says, hey, we got a letter, and it's from Pastor James. They didn't have it divided into chapters and into verse numbers. In fact, they would sit into the room and listen to this full letter read aloud to them. So we got to understand that what was just taking place is James gave us an incredible view of what real, true religion looks like. Right? We remember this? 
Religion bad. No, religion is good. True religion is good. It means to be bound up with Christ, to worship, to be devoted to a deity. And in our case, we have true religion because we're devoted and we're worshiping and we're bound up with God, with Christ our Lord. And so now that kind of breaks apart the whole idea that we said last week, just by way of passing once again, then I cannot overstate that we have to bury in the ground, I don't want religion, I want relationship. No, we want true religion because it is relationship with our God. And James says, so then here's what it looks like. And he uses as just an example, not in a way that is just these type of people, but it is an example. So what does he use? He uses the widows and the orphans. And so now what James is doing is he's expounding upon that idea that I want you to understand completely what true religion to our God looks like. And he again uses those who are in poor as this example, because in context, what is the Jewish culture mostly likely made up of? Poor. There's no middle class here. You're either really poor or you are a part of an incredibly small amount of people and you're very rich. And so James now is giving us this idea and and furthering out this idea of what true religion looks like by talking about preferential treatment, by talking about favoritism, by talking about partiality. And if I were to think of another adjective, I would, but I am out of them as we speak. Now, James is not, in essence, when we look at this, we, we see this, he's not condemning all preferential treatment. Now, let me give you an example. And I think it's, our culture has kind of, um, been pretty bad at losing respect for all ages, right? And so if there is a lady by the name of Miss Murphy, Miss Murphy is 85 years old. There's one chair left in the building in some little hooligan who is just six years old and he grabs the seat and yet poor Miss Murphy is still left standing. Well, what's the right thing to do? You yank the six-year-old by his ear and you toss him out outside and you allow Miss Murphy, who's barely standing because she's 95 years old, to have the seat. Now, now you say, well, I don't know, James just said, you know, this is the way we got no show, no partiality. Well, actually, if you look upon further review, if you think about 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says, show proper respect where respect is due. So you got to look at this in prop, through the proper lens of saying that if there's some poor kid and he's just being a turd and he's trying to take Miss Murphy's seat again, if your last name is Miss Murphy, I have no idea that your last name is We have a Miss Murphy. And this Miss Murphy is actually not 95 years old. Let's move on. Look at the instruction that he gives then. Show no. Okay, so let me tell you how I, sh how I did that. I Googled, show me the most common old lady white last name. And Murphy was the first one that showed up. And I'm not saying you're an old, we're just going to move on. We may have just lost the Murphys in our church altogether, but we, we're going to call them back and they're going to come back. James is not saying that, you know, to, to honor these people, that, that we have to, you know, forsake, you know, the, the, these other type of people. So, so look at this instruction then that he gives here. So, that instruction is a very, just pretty upfront, clear, concise, courageous if we can. What does he say? Don't show 
favoritism. Your translation may say, don't show partiality. Now, James is clearly catching on with the theme of Scripture. I mean, you think about just the message of Jesus. Come. And who was that message to? Everyone. You know, he's just kind of exploding the way of the religious establishment who thought, you know, I'm the elite. I am the one that needs to be shown respect. You know, I, I do all of this for the people. And Jesus just comes and launches a grenade upon the culture. And he's like, no, for anyone, anyone who comes, anyone, not just for the Jewish people, anyone who comes. James is taking note from his, from, from his brother, half-brother Jesus. And in fact, if you, if you study throughout all of Scripture, you find that this is quite a common theme. In fact, I'm thinking in Acts chapter 10, when Peter gets the weird vision where Peter was just thinking that the gospel was just for the Jews, and then, and then all of a sudden, gee, like God gives him this dream of like, Bacon and like, like, you know, all these weird things. It's not really bacon. Just go back and read it. Acts chapter 10 and verse 34. Uh, Peter then, and he's at the house of Cornelius. And Peter begins to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but, ex- but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. In other words, that this gospel message shows no partiality, that it is not just for the Jews, but it's for those heathen Gentile folks too. Hey, and, 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 and all of y'all should have said amen right there because that's y'all. You are here, you're a beneficiary of the gospel message that shows no partiality because it reaches beyond all of our ideas and all of those things. And so that's, that's what James says. Pretty easy, right? And then he gives this illustration. I'm going to quickly just go through these, this illustration. There's two strangers, it would appear. Appear they're strangers because they don't know where they're going to be sitting, right? So we know they're strangers and... They're trying to find their seat, and I, you know, I, I can imagine if I go into a, a church that I probably feel in some ways uh, that it's not easy to find which seat am I supposed to sit in. Maybe you're here this morning. It took a lot from you just to walk into this room. This is your first time here. You're like, well, I hope I don't sit in this seat, or I hope I don't go here. This is exactly what's taking place. And then all of a sudden you find that you sat in Miss Murphy's seat and Miss Murphy said, you better get out of my seat. Actually, that Miss Murphy would never tell you that. She would be like, well, let's cuddle and let's hug and we're going to talk for hours. <laughs> right? But maybe you found, well, we'll use Miss Jenkins now. If your last name is Miss Jenkins, please do not raise your hand. And so maybe you sat down in Miss Jenkins and Miss Jenkins is like, you in my seat, get out of my seat. Right? How awkward would that be? And then this is exactly uh, what, what takes place here. And so what happens? Who do they do? What do they do? They give the seat to the one who looks like they got it all together. We got one more seat here. And we're going to give it to the brother who's got some substance. He's got some dollars in his pocket. He looks like, you know, he, got, he plays the part really well. We're not going to give it to the guy who ain't got no dollars and the one is dressed like he's a hobo. Now, the problem is in American culture is that if you dress like a hobo, you're likely rich. Now, I'm not getting on that trend, okay? 
But I've noticed some of these little hooligan teenagers dressing like they hobos, and then they pulling up in their little, you know, their little brand new car up in their little three-story house. I'm like, why are you dressed like a little hobo? And I digress again. So it's hard to distinct this from American culture. But again, you have to look at the context of what's taking place here. In the Jewish culture, there's really poor, and then there's the few who are really rich. And so you see here that the context was largely that of significant poverty with very few people who were exceptionally rich instead of there being some sort of great middle class. It's much more like you go to the slums of Mexico, the slums of Haiti, the slums of many countries in Africa that maybe some of you have visited. And then you see that the, the, the ruling class was much of a, a poverty. That was the, the majority of people. That's what the context is here. And in fact, we have to find ourselves in this unique society, in this unique place, in order to figure out where do we fit in. And some of you may say, well, I don't, you know, I, I, I don't run into anything like this into church. You know, we're... We're pretty welcoming people here, and I would say that we are. We're pretty welcoming in these parts. And, you know, we do have people like, girl, you better sit over here with me. And, and, and it's a pretty cool thing. And I can't say all churches are like that because you and I know both, both know that we've walked in those places. And we have felt like, wow, I am out of place here. I am not dressed the part. I don't look the part. I don't feel the part. And then on the other side of this aspect, we see that many, many of you haven't seen that work itself out in church. And I pray you haven't because that leaves a stain on some churches. But you have seen the appointment of leadership in church, not on account of wisdom, but on the account of wealth. You've seen the appointment of leaderships in church where, oh, this guy's got a nice little bank statement here. He's you know, he's really checking off the things that makes him appear like he fits the part. But, but when you, upon looking deep in his life, there's no wisdom. And I guarantee you, you've seen that in some of these churches. Now, James is going to give us a couple of applications, a couple of rhetorical questions, and I'll go through them pretty rapidly if I can. He makes an application of this, and by the way, I'll make another application when we're finished with his applications. Question one is this rhetorical question that he gives. Hasn't God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith? He says, I want you to listen. This is very important. Hasn't God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith? And of course, what's the answer to the rhetorical question? Yes. You think about the great Magnificat from, from Mary in, in Luke chapter 1 as she sings about Jesus, the Messiah. Think about the song that she says, He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things but has sent away the rich empty. 
And we find the answer just here in one brief text out of many texts, the answer to the rhetorical question. That yes, God. Now, the, the other part of that equation is that, does God also choose the rich? Well, have you met Abraham? Have you read the story of Job? Do you not know Zacchaeus? Do you not know some of these other Joseph of Arimathea? So what he's doing is he's pressing and driving home a point by taking just the one side of the poor and stating it in a way that it's very compelling in its impact because the vast majority were poor. And so they would understand exactly what James is talking about. And then he gives a second question. And this is a question that deserves a bit of understanding. Isn't it the rich who are exploiting you and dragging you into the court? Now, again, this is generally the case, but not invariably so. So James, for a moment, suggesting that only litigation that was taking place was an animosity that came from people who were wealthy. In other words... The people who were ruling and the people who had wealth would be the ones who would be able to have the power to oppress the poor. Now, I guarantee you we still see that in our world today. Where the poor is in need of someone to defend them. Someone who would represent them. And, and sadly, they may get some kind of court-appointed person just fresh out of law school. And they're not going to get the best, well-known, well-represented lawyer that the man with wealth would have. And it's very clear that we still see this in our culture where there is still this type of exploitation from rich people over the poor. James says, you got to watch out. He's exposing some of what our religion really looks like. And then he gives us the other rhetorical question. Aren't they the ones who slander the noble name of him to whom you belong? Now, notice what he's doing here. The, the, the people who are slandering, the people who are, uh, who, who are uh, the ones who slander the noble name of whom he, you belong, what is he saying? He's not saying that the poor are the ones who are being slandered. No, he's pointing it back to the one that they worship. The ones in whom they identify with. That the poor is not the ones who are inevitably being slandered by these wicked rich rulers. Who is the one they are slandering? Who is the one that they are at odds with? Who is the one that is the stumbling block for them that they just can't get past? Who is the one that they blaspheme against? Who is the one that they completely hate and tried to kill him, but they couldn't? None other than Christ our Lord. He's the one who is slandered. He is the one who is being blasphemed against. And so when they come against the church, inevitably, who are they coming against? The God that they worship. Because it's, it's God who they have a problem with. Right? That's, that's the issue. That's the, that's the whole problem in our culture today. They don't have a problem with Christians. Christians. 
They have a problem with the one who is calling them out of their sin and into the light. That's who they have a problem with. Because what does that do? It wrestles with their conscience. It wrestles with, wait a minute, I'm not the God. I'm not the ultimate one in my life. The world doesn't revolve around me. No, so what do they do? They are at odds with the creator God. The one who is demanding, and that's right, I said demanding them to bow their knee to him. I won't bow my knee to God. And so what do they do? And what do they do in this text? What is James given this rhetorical question about? So they slander. They slander him. They mock him. They're blaspheming against him. It's the ones who have the wicked hearts. And James gives this rhetorical question, question like, hey, these people right here, this one that you're building up, this one that you're like, you know, uh, just so, uh, y- you know how people get when they're around their favorite celebrity. You know, they just, you, you remember watching old film of, of Elvis and the girls would pass out and, and because they were just so flabbergasted with this young man. And you still see it with these Swifty people who need Jesus. And, and so, and so and they just get, they just get, get beside themselves. And they have done that with this rich person. And they forgot about the poor guy. And they're like, bro, this guy was just slandering our Lord just a few moments ago. Why, why are you doing this? Why are you showing partiality to this guy? Now, all of that to say, by way of saying, this is just about favoritism, partiality. Favoritism is not some small matter. And that's what we have to wrestle with. It's showing partiality to people because of an ethnicity, because of whatever. You have to wrestle with this. It's not a small matter because favoritism says that we have broken the ruling principle that summarizes God's ex- um, expectation for his people. And what is that? Love God and love our neighbor as ourself. Isn't that all of the law that Jesus says can be just summarized in this right here? Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. It would appear that these people that James is talking to have kind of forgotten a little bit about the, the, the ultimate law that Jesus gives us. James is giving an indication here that the proof of justification is works. The proof of justification is works. Works does not justify you. Well, let me rephrase that. Your works cannot justify you. There was only one work that could justify you, and that was the work of Jesus Christ via the cross. That was the work that can justify you. So the ground of our salvation, you got to go back to chapter 1, that the ground of our salvation is the work of Christ, the, the truth of the word as he describes it, and the evidence of our salvation is to be found in our works, and in our deeds. If I could just read verse 14, I'll get into this next week, but I just got to read this because he says, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such 
faith save him? Notice he doesn't say, can faith save him? He says, can such faith save him? Now, can such faith save him? Now, we've already kind of wrestled with that there is, in principle, a way for you to say that you're religious, but you miss the mark. And that's what James is saying here. You can say you're religious all you want. You could say you're a follower of Christ. But the evidence... The evidence of you continuously showing partiality to someone. The evidence of you continuously showing favoritism to someone. Shows that you are self-deceived. Now, woof, right? That's, that's, we got to wrestle with that. And you have to then ask yourself the question. If I come into this room every Sunday and I will choose not to give partiality to somebody because maybe they, you know, insert the blank or they hurt my feelings or they were talking about me or they were doing this and you leave that open and you don't deal with it, your religion is empty. You see someone who comes in, you're like, well, I don't know. They don't smell like us. They don't look like us. They don't talk like us. And then again, you've self-deceived. You are self-deceived. And you have false religion. There is a religion, as we have come to agreement here from the text, that God our Father regards as pure and as faultless. And what, what was that again? The, the, the one who has a controlled tongue? Again, it's not an exhaustive list, but it's a test. And then the one who has a compassionate heart. And if you summarize this and you just kind of look at this in context as just that same language that James was using last week is just continuing to bleed over, he's continuously hammering in, listen, if your heart is not compassionate, you are fooling yourself to think that you have real salvation. What you have is empty words. What you have is what Jesus would say. And y'all know Jesus was a little bit more rough with his wordings. You're a whitewashed tomb. Externally, you look the part, but internally, you have no compassion for the people around you. And listen, I... I don't want to say and sit here and go like, Matthew Thrower has all the answers, right? I've got it all figured out. I am the most compassionate person you'll ever meet. That's a lie. Because I promise you, there are times when there's just not an ounce of compassion in my soul. And I just want to, and it's mainly because maybe I'm just busy or maybe because I am trying to do something else or maybe it's just because I got my own issues, I got my own things that I'm dealing with. I don't want to have to take five minutes and deal with somebody in their need. And then James would say, you have false religion. And so what this is, is a diagnostic of your heart. James has seemingly cut you right open in the middle, opened up your chest cavity and exposed you. 
Maybe that's happened to some of you, and I think it has, Kim. Spiritually speaking, as I should say. And he's, and he's, giving, you, and he's giving you the diagnostic, and he's, and he's telling you, listen, brother, you've got a lot of cool words that you say. You know, you are all so eloquent in your eschatology. You know, you, you know the you know the justification and you know the doctrine of the trinity and and you know uh you know all of the the soteriology and everyology that you can think of and you're just so eloquent in it but you have no compassion it's an interesting Interesting illustration that he gives about seed, isn't it? In fact, it's not the only time that this has been mentioned in the Bible. In fact, if you could think back uh, from Matthew chapter 20 and even in Mark's gospel, uh, the mother of the Zebedee's son asked Jesus, can my son sit at your right hand and left? And Jesus is like, you know, if you want to seat at my table, here's what you got to do. You got to consider yourself last. Wow. If you're thinking about seeds anyway, notice what the first verse says, and I'm, I'm wrapping this thing up to a close. Let me, let me find that verse because this just went to my mind. Verse one, my brothers show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Think about that. This has kingdom implications. Who is the one that deserves glory? Who is the only one that deserves a good seat in the house anyway? The king of glory. The king of glory is the one who sits on the throne. And so you got to think about this. He ain't sharing his throne with nobody. You, you know Why? Because we're terrible gods. We are. The only one that deserves a right seat. The only one that deserves to be welcomed in with our hearts bowed and our faces prostrate on the ground. The only person that deserves that. Is Jesus Christ the King? There's a great hymn by William Newell, and he writes, Mercy there was great, and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. Because that's where the ground level is, isn't it? That's, that's where the ground's level, right? At Calvary. Not in your DEI class assessment. Every person. You come to, to Calvary, to the cross, and you're all equal. You're not greater just because you have this or that. No, see, this is what James is saying here. That's where it doesn't matter where you, your house is or your car, what kind of car you have, whether you're black, white, 
green, if you're green and you go hospital, or you're, you're yellow or whatever, it doesn't matter. Mercy. Mercy was there. Mercy was there and grace was so free and it pardoned there was multiplied to me at the foot of the cross at Calvary. And therefore, I say, I sh I, with the same comfort that I've been comforted, with that same mercy that I've been shown, I then extend it out to those around me.